goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you're pursuing. You have to tell them about the thread. As long as you follow it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt and die. You suffer and grow old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. Uh, somehow, um, you know, we find our way in our life. Uh, tonight, you know, the thread has brought us here, even though each of us has a different thread. <laughs> and here tonight, you know, our threads are like temporarily making a little bit of a fabric. <laughs> so that's pretty nice. You know, and then at the end of the evening, things will have gotten mixed up. You, you, you know, you don't know. Maybe you'll leave with somebody else's. But... <laughs> but but um, somebody else's will lead you back to your own eventually. <laughs> so um, part of what's, um, you know, uh, for me, uh, interesting about this poem is as... Um, you know, I um, many of you have heard I'm in a movie now um, called How to Cook Your Life. Uh, it's 93 minutes. It's by a German film director named Doris <clears throat> Doris Dory. It was in the Mill Valley Film Festival on the 26th. It's going to be in theaters, um, uh, the, including the Rafael <clears throat> the Rafael Theater, and uh, it'll be over in Berkeley. I forget. I have trouble keeping track of these things. And it, it turns out, you know, the thread of my life is, does not include being promotional, you know, and bringing handouts. And here's all the things I'm doing. And that doesn't seem to particularly be my thread. <laughs> so I don't have anything like that for you, you know, that says, go see the movie, you know, or anything like that. Um, and now I can't find the piece of paper that listed the theaters, but it's somewhere over in Berkeley, and it's going to be in San Francisco. And, you know, over the next month or two, it's going to be in, uh, you know, across the country. New York, Boston, Washington, D.C., you know, St. Paul, Minneapolis, you know, Phoenix, Tucson, Portland, Seattle, <laughs> L.A., and, you know, and beyond. So... Um, I've just been following the thread of my life and suddenly I'm in a movie. How do these things happen? Huh? It's a, it's a, somebody just asked, what's it about? It's a movie about um, a cooking class, the kinds of cooking classes I do, uh, which is combining Zen meditation and instructions, Dogen, Zen Master Dogen's instructions to the cook and the cooking class and the talks, and then odds and ends of things that Doris comes up with to put into movies. <laughs> so, um, you know, so there's a few people, you know. So one of my friends uh, here in Fairfax is, lives out of dumpsters, so Jackie's now in the movie, you know. And uh, she's walking down her street in Fairfax, you know, picking berries and talking about how she decided... Um, that she'd rather do the work of reducing the waste in the world by living out of the food of dumpsters rather than, you know, getting a job and contributing to the waste. But this is how she sees it, you know. So various things show up, and then it shows feeding homeless people and odds and ends of stuff. And then um, Doris, um, a couple years ago, two years ago, she was at Tassar with her daughter Carla, and I was doing my uh, five-day cooking course there where we meditate and we talk and we visit and we uh, cook for an hour and a half or two in the afternoons. And uh, Doris and her daughter were there and they had such a good time. After a couple of days, she said, Ed, do you want to make a movie? And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought about it. I said, Doris, you know, next summer I'm going to be in Austria 
doing this same course with meditation and Dogen's instructions and cooking classes. And, um, and it turned out that that meditation center, she said, oh, that's less than two hours from my house in, where I live in Munich. We can come and film you there. So, and then they added five more days at Tassajara. So they filmed about, I don't know, 50 or 70 hours or something and turned it into a 93-minute movie. And then it was shown, um, so from the time we first talked about it, uh, it was shown last February at the Berlin Film Festival, less than a year and a half from when we talked about it. And after the premiere night at the Berlin Film Festival, the movie was bought by some American distributors called Roadside Attractions. So now my movie is a roadside attraction. (laughs) And in Canada, it's been bought, but the distributors are called Mongrel Media. So in Canada, my movie is going to be a dog. (laughs) anyway uh, so Roadside Attractions is you know they're the distributors they were the distributors for What the Bleep Do We Know and Super Size Me and Amazing Grace and Colma and you know a number of movies so and the thing is I never go to movies what am I doing in a movie and I don't watch television and suddenly I'm in a movie who would I mean how does that work so somehow you know um, we we go along and then things happen. It's amazing. So this has now happened, and uh, so I don't know what it's going to mean or anything, but um, you know, go see it. <laughs> and um, uh, this is sort of like cooking, you know, food, which means that you know when you make a meal, some people like it and some people don't. <laughs> so this is the way the movie's going to be, I'm sure. <laughs> Already, you know, some people like it, and then other people say, Ed Brown is moderately enlightening. (laughs) But you might get more out of watching someone on the Food Channel. (laughs) Although he can handle a blade, which I think refers to, you know, a chef's knife. So anyway... But it's a little unusual um, for you know it's a documentary, so I'm just being I'm just uh, being me. I'm not acting most of the time. I'm not acting. <laughs> there were a couple scenes that I'm acting, but you can't tell. <laughs> and uh, uh, Mark Fishkin from the Mill Valley Film Festival was there in Berlin, and he left me a phone message that said, the movie is wise, witty, and well put together, and I've never met you, but it seems like you're just you. (laughs) So if you enjoy it all hanging out with me tonight, then you might enjoy hanging out with me for an hour and a half at the Rafael Theater or someplace. (laughs) But anyway, you can decide. Um, And I do find this interesting, you know, that... uh, And in some ways, you know, this is... um, it's interesting in various ways, partly because somehow my thread has brought me to this. The thread of my life. I'm just following the thread of my life. And Doris appears and says, do you want to be in a movie? And I say, yes. Yeah. And um, this is what we do. We go along and things come and we say yes or no or we we start um, you know, creating things or doing things or... You know, and we decide, how do I, how am I, what do am I going to be doing with my life? You know, today, tomorrow, going forward. And it's, this is very mysterious because we, each of us has different gifts uh, and different uh, resources, inner resources, you know, capacities uh, from within you know, our resilience or our determination or our passion or... And then there's our gifts. So, you know, lately, for instance, I've been studying again about personality types, you know, in the Myers-Briggs and the Kiersey. Please, and you know, there's a... And, you know, introvert, extrovert, intuitive or sensate, feeling or thinking type, so-called judging or perceptive. And I'm just like the kind of person I am. 
it's not because I practice Zen or anything. I, that's just the kind of person I am. I'm somebody who's interested in my inner life. I'm something. I'm somebody who's interested in sharing my inner life with other people. I'm interested in, you know, finding myself. And the the problem that I, my kind of person has, you know, you can't ever find yourself because then you'd lose the meaning of your life, which is to be finding yourself. <laughs> So here I am, 62, or you know, and it's like, now what? Who am I? <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> but uh, people say, how could you spend 20 years at the Zen Center? And so they're like, well, I like following schedules. That's the J part, you know. <laughs> I like following schedules, and I like knowing what's going to happen next, you know. You know what this, and you know like the meals are going to be on time. <laughs> there, then the food is going to come, the bell is going to ring, the food's going to come, and you know, and it's not like, oh, we'll figure out some place to stay, or you know, the food will come when it's ready. No, in Zen, it's like, so it's perfect for my type of person, you know. You just do the next thing on the schedule. You know what's going to happen next. You have a chance to look into your inner life. You're not too worried about my kind of person. We're not interested in so much in like having the next great experience. <laughs> I've never been skiing. Oh, it's so exhilarating, people say. Really? <laughs> oh, good. Well, I hope you have fun. Get, go get exhilarated. But, you know, you know, when I think about that, I think like you're going to drive up to the Sierras for four hours to go skiing for a few minutes and you like being in all that traffic i came back on highway 80 one time on a sunday oh my god going through sacramento is like an hour and a half you know like when you know when it's sunday evening and some people seem to just love being in traffic you know they just love it like that's because you had so much fun you know you were so exhilarated it was worth it's worth it and I don't know how people do it. I just don't love being in traffic, you know. Um, so I don't know how, you know, these things work, but other people are other people, you know, and people like skiing, and they actually, people, some people like going to the movies. I don't go to the movies, and here I am in one. This is strange. So, um, you know, we're kind of up to different things in our lives, you know, and we're, we're actually finding out how to be ourselves. And, you know, finding out how to... And interestingly enough, you know, part of this in Zen is, you know, that our difficulties or our hindrances or our problems actually is part of our thread. You know, in Zen we say, your hindrances become the opportunity. Your difficulties, you know, are your path. So I've had a lot of difficulties in my life. But, you know, I don't need to tell you about that. (laughs) Well, it started when I was born. (laughs) You know, um, when I was... And when I was born, I was born a month early. And uh, my mom already had cancer. Uh, And people I've worked with about this said... It must have been very painful in there, and you got out as soon as you could. And you probably never really bonded with your mother because it was just too intense there, inside of her. And she had a lot of, uh, you know, anxiety and fear. And, um, you know, I mean, she worked with all that, you know. But I was born a month early, and then uh, just a few years ago, finally, I got a letter from my brother, an email, and my brother had had been going through old letter, family letters, and there was one from my father to my uncle, and it says, the baby was born, you know, a month early. My mom went home from the hospital a week later. The baby came home 16 days later, so she had a very good rest. <laughs> what was happening to little Eddie is kind of like... <laughs> Unspeakable, unmentionable, kind of like, of no concern, who cares. (laughs) 
my father used to tell me you were born premature, but I sort of like, so? And then at some point it's like, oh. So, you know, as far as I can tell, there you go, you see? This is like if you're in the, you know, like, so was I a Zen student because I was doing post-traumatic reenactment? I mean, I just spent the first two, three weeks of my life lying there looking at the ceiling in my own little cubicle. This is what we do in Zen. You sit there, you know, facing the wall in your own little space, and you don't talk to anybody, you don't interact with anybody, you don't touch anybody, nobody touches you, nobody talks to you, they just leave you in your little space. Deal with it. So I either did 20 years of post-traumatic reenactment, post-traumatic play, or it's the James Hillman theory of the acorn, you know, and of course I was getting ready for my future destiny as a Zen teacher, and that was my first meditation session. <laughs> Straight out of the womb into the, like, you know, void. The vast nothingness, the disconnection. And so I learned really early how to dissociate, you know, and not be here. And now I've spent my life finding out how to be here, how to show up and actually have my experience and my thoughts and my feelings and taste things and smell things and do things. And, you know, it's, it hasn't been easy, you know. Because when, when you, once you learn to dissociate, it's so peaceful there. It's so sweet and peaceful and nice. You just get, so you're a little lonely. <laughs> but it's safe. And then every time you aim for intimacy or connection, you know, you, it's like so challenging. And then it's so scary. Like what's going to happen if you come out of your hiding, your safe place to hide out, you know, and actually meet somebody or talk to somebody or, you know, even just to meet food. You know, taste a carrot. So this is, I think, actually a big challenge for any of us to just have our experience moment after moment. You know, to see and smell and taste and touch and to have our thoughts and to have our feelings. And Would that be okay? And interestingly enough, it's really challenging. And of course, one of the simple big points about that is we get kind of distracted by trying to have the right experience rather than the wrong one. Because if we had enough of the right experiences, we could get some approval finally for being me. <laughs> I'm getting enough of the right experiences. So th- isn't that good? <laughs> and, um, but it turns out that you can never get enough right experiences to like yourself. Yeah, it's sad. (laughs) I mean, and I spent, you know, a lot of years of my life trying to do that, so I know. But, you know, we start out with who we are and the wounds we have, and our wounds are, you know, as many people say, you know, that's your character, right? That has something to do, and your wounds are, you know, what give you your character and what give you something to do in your life. There's a terrific guy here, like in Marin, you know, uh, Richard uh, Unger, you know, and he does, he and his wife do hand analysis. So he can look at your hand and tell you what your wound, what your wound is. He, he told me. Well, one of the things he told me is, this is like three, three years ago. He said, you are, from your hand, you are a big shot insight communicator. So I sent him one of my movie flares. Who would have thunk? (laughs) Big shot insight communicator. How does he know? He looks at my hand. And he says, and don't worry, you know, most big shots, 80% of big shots don't want to be a big shot. They hate big shots. (laughs) But uh, insight communicator, this is not just one or two people a day or five or ten people a day. This is like, you know, And he said, and if I'm right about this, he said, you will have already done something in your life like this. And right away I thought, oh, toss our bread book. That sold hundreds of thousands of copies. And, you know, people in America started baking. People, you know, people started bakeries because of my book. It changed the culture of America. 
one, of, one person started baking from my book and started a bakery, which he worked in for 20 years. And it, he was part of an ashram, and they sold that. Then he did another bakery for seven years. And they just did bread, partially baked and frozen. You want it. We don't have trucks. If you want it, you come pick it up. And after seven years, he sold it for $35 million. They had about $10 million in debt, so he and his partners netted $25 million from making bread. And he got the idea to make bread from my book, not to make it like that. I mean, he was making plants, you know, a block square. And, you know, the flower is hosed, comes in hoses from trains or trucks into, into silos and hosed from the silos into mixers. And you don't have sacks of flour or cans of oil or anything. You know, it's, anyway, it's, it's amazing what happened from that. You know? And now there's bread. Now there's Acme Bakery and Grace Bakery. And, you know, and there was nothing like that. And I know many stories personally from that. You know? And I decided that when I was 10 years old. 10 years old, I went to visit my aunt, and she made bread. She made homemade bread. And I thought, this is so good. Why aren't we all eating like this? And I decided at 10 years old, I will learn how to make bread and I will teach others to make bread. I was 10 years old. <laughs> so notice what you decide, you know. <laughs> See what you know you so that's the thread. You know, and we have thoughts and ideas and feelings and we come to things, you know, inside. So Suzuki Roshi said the the most important thing for a student, you know, is your sincerity. The most important thing is to listen carefully, is the he says the character and effort of the student to listen to your inner voice. That's the same as the thread, huh? To listen to your inner voice. What's, what is your inner voice? And, and of course, it's a lot of work, actually, and sometimes it takes a long time to find, of all those voices, when you sit, you know, which is your inner voice? <laughs> so this is not a simple business, you know? How do you... How do you how do you become quiet enough to actually hear the, your inner your own inner voice, and to know the thread of your life, and what you're going to do, you know the direction, or the wish, or the intention, that you know that's going to move you. Uh, so this is, um, you know, it's turned out another one of my interests, uh, you know, is, um, well, finding this inner voice and what Suzuki Rishi called sincerity. And sincerity is, um, you know, he said, um, he said, I can't tell you what it is. But when you're sincere, you will see it. <laughs> it's one of those catches. But he also said, this is where the teacher's important. Because when you meet a teacher who's sincere, you'll know. And uh, in the Zen tradition sometimes, you know, um, especially the Zen master Dogen, who's the founder of the Soto Zen school in Japan, he went to China. And he'd been studying Zen, you know, and he'd read through the complete scriptures two or three times. And he'd studied with various teachers, and he still went to China to find a teacher that he, you know, recognized. Uh, Suzuki Rishi said he was looking for somebody who was as sincere as he was. And um, uh, Dogen wasn't interested in being a Zen person or even, you know, 
a Buddhist. He said he wanted to be called Monk Dogen. <laughs> Suzuki Roshi said he wanted to be, you know, a priest, a monk from the bottom of his heart and mind. And this was what he wanted to do with his life. Again, you know, so that was the thread of his life is to find someone, to meet someone who matched that in him. And right away when he saw, met the Zen teacher in China whose uh, name in Japanese is Nyojo, Tendo Nyojo, Dogen recognized him and he said, you're my teacher. And Nyojo looked at him and said, you're my student, you're my disciple. Uh, and, uh, and Dogen actually said, not so fast. <laughs> um, because uh, his teacher, the teacher right away was ready to give him Dharma transmission and recognize him. And, and Dogen said, no, I'll study with you. I want to study with you before you do that. <laughs> so after two years, um, uh, you know, the story is that one night while they were sitting meditating late at night and his teacher sometimes would, you know, Zen they have these big sticks too, but in those days apparently he would take off his slippers and wall up the monks to wake up, you know. And he, was, he took off his slipper and hit a monk who was sitting next to Dogen and said, Zen is dropping off body and mind. Wake up. And Dogen did. <laughs> and his teacher said, and his teacher recognized that in him. You don't, you know, and that is very much like sincerity no longer trying to keep or maintain a particular body or mind and letting go of that body and mind and, and then having the body and mind of the present. And it's not something you can just do once and for all, you know. Because sometimes we get involved in like keeping and maintaining and having and, and then worried about losing and, you know, various minds or bodies. So I wanted to um, uh, tell you a story that I like uh, about um, my Zen teacher Suzuki Roshi at Tassahara one day. You know, this is um, sometime in the 60s. I missed that whole, you know, flower child thing. I was, you know, practicing Zen. You know, Jack was in a Thai monastery. I was at Tassahara. I was actually a you know conscientious objector, and I served my country in alternate two years two years alternate service. Zen, at Tassahara. That wasn't the cover story, but that was the actual story. There was a cover story to that. I hope the statute of limitations has expired. <laughs> You're not turning me in. Um, but uh, one day, uh, Suzuki Roshi. Um, uh, was having we were having tea and then uh, Suzuki Rishi said does anybody have any questions and uh, one of the students said to him uh, Suzuki Roshi why haven't you enlightened me yet <laughs> you could go a lot of ways with that one huh <laughs> It's a little bit like, um, you know, why didn't you, why haven't you done the housework yet? Or <laughs> why haven't you made me happy? That, by the way, is my karmic wound. You don't know how to be happy. It's as though in your last life you were in charge of an orphanage for 60 people. How did he come up with that one? Because I was in the orphanage for four years after my mom died. But it's as though you were in charge of an orphanage for 60 kids and there was a war going on. 
And this is just a story, he said. But, you know, I was born in 1945. My past life, I could have been in charge of an orphanage for 60 kids with a war going on. And if you did a good job, the kids would survive and flourish. And if you didn't, they might all perish. And somebody comes to interview you and says, and you talk about all the things you're doing and how the orphanage is going. And then at the end they say, and so, Mr. Brown, are you happy? And it's kind of like the most irrelevant question you've heard. Because you're doing what you need to do. But anyway, since he mentioned that to me, and other people have mentioned this to me, you know, I've decided, you know, to maybe I, I could practice Buddhism and study how to be happy. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, the student said, why haven't you enlightened me yet? And Suzuki Roshi kind of paused. I was, you know, waiting for him to straighten out this, you know, student. <laughs> I felt sort of upset, like that was not a very respectful question. Uh, and he said, I'm making my best effort. <laughs> and he didn't say, you know, enlightenment depends on the... At that point, he wasn't saying, you know, since, you know, when you're sincere, you know, and, you know, practice really depends on the character and effort of the student. <laughs> um so I thought that was very, you know, tender of him and very gracious. And, you know, there's a kind of truth to this. And, you know, each of us in our own way is making our best effort, but it's, it's so hard to see it sometimes, isn't it? And it's so hard to accept that or to realize that even our best effort, you know, doesn't mean that everything comes out the way we want it to any more than Suzuki Roshi's best effort can enlighten everybody in the room on the spot. And we do our best effort and, you know, sometimes the food gets burned. And sometimes people um, are not pleased with us and they're unhappy with us and they tell us what's wrong with us. And, and sometimes we're not very kind to other people and sometimes all kinds of things happen and yet we're actually making our best effort. That's our good heart. You know. And that's our seeing and, and, you know, our body and mind is giving us, you know, experiences. And when I say, you know, at the beginning of meditation, sit down and see what your experience is. Taste your experience. Right? And for once, just have the experience you have, whether it's good or bad, right or wrong, you know, have your experience. And because, you know, and you can say, oh, this isn't good enough and it's not right and it's, you know, I should be able to do better. But in the meantime, your, your mind and body is saying, you know, I'm giving you things to smell, things to see, things to think, things to feel. What, what? I'm making my best effort to... <laughs> be here for you and and then you're telling me like it's not good enough and it's wrong and it's you know why can't you why can't why haven't you know when we say to our own bodies and minds you know why haven't you enlightened me yet can you figure out how to do that I'd really like it if you could come up with some you know good experiences for me that would show would, would certify me <laughs> and uh Again, you know, Sisikrishi said, when you practice with sincerity, even enlightenment, even to search for enlightenment is a stain. Is your, your practice isn't pure enough. You're looking for something. What about, you know, the thread of your life and the thread of your experience and being right with that? And that's why I say, you know, we say in Zen sometimes, this is about intimacy. Enlightenment is another word for intimacy, becoming intimate with your experience, with your own body and mind and being, and you could become so intimate with yourself.
And uh, this is, you know, again, this is not, this is very challenging for any of us to become, you know, intimate. Because to become intimate means it could hurt. You can't become intimate if you're going to say, well, I'm only going to become intimate if it's a good experience. <laughs> if it's a pleasant one, I'll become intimate with it. And if it's not a pleasant one, I'm not going there. And I'll decide which ones I'm going to be intimate with and which ones I won't. And then you spend your whole life kind of dissociated and separate from your experience. Because nothing is quite good enough. And then you just get in the habit of not really being in your experience. And actually, you're spending most of your experience deciding whether or not you're going to be with the experience, and by then it's gone and it's in the past anyway. <laughs> by then they like, well, that was a good one. How do I get it back? <laughs> that was a bad one, and how do I get rid of it? But they're both gone. <laughs> so, um, you know, practicing meditation in Buddhism, and, you know, this is, this is um, you know, revolutionary that you could actually have your life and appreciate your own good heart and your own body and mind. You know, you're making your best effort and, and let that come in, into your heart, into your being, and meet, meet your life and be in the midst of your life and, and become that much more uh, intimate with the thread of who you are and where you, you know, are going with your life. What's, what's moving in you? Your inner voice, your heart. <clears throat> and, um, you know, uh, most of you won't be like me. You know, I have certain interests, and, and you will have other interests. I can't play music. Some people say, oh, anybody can play music. And, you know, if I'm in the right situation and with the right people, I can sing along with other people. But, you know, if I try to do it by myself, I, I can't find the tune. And I played clarinet for 10 years, and I couldn't tell, even after 10 years of playing the clarinet, whether it was sharp or flat <laughs> compared to other people or even compared to other notes that I was playing. <laughs> I couldn't tell. Now, that to me has something to do with, like, I don't have a gift for that. <laughs> no matter how much I practiced. And what I did have fun doing was doing stuff with my hands. I, that I have a gift for. I think I can do stuff with my hands. My hands love to do things. I know that. So um, we're, you know, discovering what our gifts are. If we're lucky, we find what our gifts are, and we also find, you know, our resources. And it doesn't mean your life is supposed to look a certain way. As I said, you know, I don't know, I'm not so interested in promotion or salesmanship or establishment. I don't have a center. And for years I've been thinking, like, why don't I have a center? I should have a center. I was always going to have a center. And then people say to me, like, do you want a center? It'd be a lot of work. <laughs> God, I'd have to have mailing lists and email addresses and fundraising letters. And... So I saw a psychic the other day and he said, you don't need to go there. You know, you're going to have opportunities. Opportunities just come to you and then you can just, you know, do them. And that's who you are. That's your life. But other people, they like creating things and establishing things and, you know, and doing all that stuff. That's who, that's who you know, other people are like that. You know, Jack. Jack's involved with creating this whole magnificent place, you know. That's who he is. He's interested, you know, he, he's, he has some gift, you know, or interest in, you know, doing something in harmony with others and creating a place for people to come. And it's some, it just comes out of him. He didn't say, like, I should, I should create a center. <laughs> no, it's just, 
it's a thread. It's the thread, you know, and it's coming from inside. And it turns out that that's what his gift is. You know. So a while back, um, I was at um, this year in April. The Zen Center has a benefit dinner, you know, and uh, it's at Green's Restaurant. And then it's you know it's like a hundred and fifty dollars or whatever it is. I don't know. It's a, but this year, the, and the last few years, we've been honoring people. So like we honored one year Cecil Williams, and then. Um, Mayumi Oda one year and some artists caused Tanahashi and we honored some people like Cecil Williams and then one of our students had been a street therapist in San Francisco for 10 years so we honored him and the woman who had founded um, one of those hospice places I forget her name Brinker um, anyway so we've been honoring various people so this year the Zen Center called me up and said we'd like to honor Zen vegetarian cooks would you be willing to be honored <laughs> I said, oh, okay. So then I went, and um, Peter Coyote was there to introduce Deborah and I. They were honoring Deborah Madison, who was also a student at Zen Center, has now written you know, many books on vegetarian cooking and um, you know, has, has been involved now with food for years and, um, and kind of discovered her gift while she was at Zen Center, I think, and, you know, and then went on from there to do a lot of books and things. And so Peter introduced her, and she gave a little talk, and then Peter introduced me. And I got up in front of this room full of people, and I said, well, it's about time. (laughs) (laughs) And a few people laughed, and then also the room was like, (laughs) where is he going with this? And do we get another few minutes of his resentments and, you know, hurt and bitterness and whatever, you know. So there was kind of this apprehension in the room. and But where I went from there was to say, you know, really, if you honor me, you're honoring my teacher, Suzuki Roshi, because I'm just a student of his. I met someone in my life who I recognized, and he recognized me. And he said, if you ever want to be a priest, let me know. I would never have dared to tell him I wanted to be a priest. And he told me, I will always be with you. And, you know, one year at Tassahara, he looked over at the steps of my house, my cabin, and he said, those stones you've piled up by your door don't look so good. He said, I know, and they're kind of wobbly. He said, in Japan, we pile stones like that on graves. (laughs) Not a good feeling. (laughs) And about a month later, I saw him, and he said, do you know that big stone outside the office? I said, yeah. There was this stone that's about this long and this high. People would get their mail in the office and go out and sit on it and read, and people would visit there on this stone. And he said... I asked Paul Disco to move it to your cabin this afternoon to be your doorstep. (laughs) Is that okay? And I said, people really like that stone in front of the office. And he said, we'll get another one. (laughs) And sure enough, that afternoon I was sitting in my cabin and we used to have this old uh, 1949, you know, dragon green... A Dodge Power Wagon that had a big A-frame thing in the front with a with a winch, and then had a we could hook up a chain on the back for and we had a we'd taken a big piece of metal like from a those 55 gallon drums or something and made it into a rock sled, and then we could attach it with the chain to the back of this power wagon. So along comes the power wagon and this thing scrapes along the ground, and then. Right by my cabin is the wooden bridge. And so going across the bridge, it's like, it's like the loudest kind of you know, fingernail on the chalkboard sort of thing. <laughs> and then they come up to my house and toss all those rocks over the edge into the creek and then haul that rock over. And every day I step on that rock and it's so solid. After all that time of the unstable rocks, I step on that rock and I remember my teacher. 
so, you know, and so he was literally, you know, there for me. I don't know how these things happen, you know. <clears throat> uh, but I told the uh, people at Greens, you're honoring me, you're really honoring Suzuki Roshi, because I followed his teaching. I followed his teaching to, you know, listen to your inner voice. I followed his teaching when you wash the rice, wash the rice. When you cut the carrots, cut the carrots. When you're cooking, you're not just cooking, you're working on yourself. I did all those things. I, I focused on the teaching. And now I'm in a movie. How do these things happen? It's very mysterious. You know, I didn't set out in any particular direction. I just followed the teaching. And then, you know, the other part of that is like being here tonight with all of you and the threads, our threads, you know, for a little while interweaving. Because I was also at Zen Center with an amazing group of people. And so I told them, you know, when you honor me, you're honoring all those other people. And we created Zen Center. You know, for years at Zen Center, we lived on room and board and $50 a month. Room and board and $75 a month and no health insurance. Now you can go live at the Zen Center and it's like room and board and $250 a month plus health insurance. Starting out. <laughs> we become an empire, a corporation. But back, you know, in the 60s and 70s, you know, and uh, early 80s, you know, we we did... You know, we practiced for the love of it. We, we practiced meditation and we worked hard and we did it all for the love of it and we just gave ourselves to it. Because that was the thread in our life at that time. That was, that was who we, you know, and we wanted to do that, we chose to do that. And then people went out and, you know, um, you know, um, one of our students, Paul Disco, now is, you know, has a huge blocks of wood over in Emeryville, you know, and builds Japanese-style buildings. And, you know, has been working on Larry Ellison's house for five or eight years or something now. It was going to be a little half-a-million-dollar project, and it's, he's still at it. And he went to China and brought back rocks and created gardens. And, and then he built, you know, like in Switzerland, 3,000 feet up above Lake Lucerne, a two-story zendo, you know, Japanese-style carpentry. Because Suzuki said, why don't you go to Japan and study carpentry? So he went to Japan for five years. But they built all the pieces for that in Emeryville, and then they put them in containers, and they go on boats over to Belgium, and then they're trucked down to Lake Lucerne, and then they're helicoptered up to the site because there's no roads. And uh, one of my old friends, you know, is the, one of the heirs to the Palmer's department stores in Europe, and Palmer's also is like the Victoria's Secret of Europe. So it turns out that ladies' underwear is building Buddhist retreat centers high above Lake Lucerne. <laughs> the world is amazing, you know, and, and we're all finding our way, you know. Seeing if we can follow the thread of our life and see where it takes us and, you know, what we're doing. What are we doing? Pretty amazing. So I think I've talked enough, huh? So here's a quote, another quote from uh, Suzuki Rishi. So the secret is just to say, yes, <laughs> and jump off from here. Then there's no problem. It means to be yourself in the present moment, always yourself, without sticking to an old self. You forget all about yourself and you are refreshed. You are a new self. And before that self becomes an old self, you say, yes. 
and you walk into the kitchen for breakfast. So the point of each moment is to forget the point and extend your practice. So thank you. Blessings. Uh, We have a few minutes. If there's any questions or comments or observations, and then I'd like to do a little chant at the end of the evening. And if any of you would like to get on your way, you're welcome to. I'm not always one for sticking around for these fool things, you know. So I'd like to give you permission if you're ready to go. Any um, questions, interests, observations, comments? Oh, the last quote. There's a good one. So the secret's just to say yes. Will you have this body? Yes. Will you have this mind? Yes. Will you have your own good heart? Yes. Good place to hang out. As the poet you know, Kabir says, enter into your body, there you'll find a solid place to put your feet. <laughs> Think about it carefully. Don't go off somewhere else. And he could have said, there you'll find a really sweet place to have your heart in your heart. Um, So the secret is just to say yes and jump off from here. Then there's no problem. It means to be yourself in the present moment. And Suzuki Roshi said, some of you are trying to be good Zen students. Why don't you be yourself? I would get to know you better that way. Um, It means to be yourself in the present moment, always yourself, without sticking to an old self. You forget all about yourself and are refreshed. Now you're a new self, and before that self becomes an old self, you say, yes. And you walk to the kitchen for breakfast. This quote is a little bit out of context, but he's talking about how his wife hits some clackers to signal that breakfast is ready and he's busy reading. Why is she bothering me? Doesn't she know I'm reading? (laughs) So he says, you know, you hear the clackers. He says, this is Zen. You know, you hear the clackers, you just say yes. You forget about your book. You go, you know, you go to breakfast. In uh, In the movie, there's a few scenes of Suzuki Rishi. If any of you, you know, haven't seen him in any movies or anything, and he's talking about um, how you can sometimes, if you're sitting in your cabin, you know, there are these blue jays, and you know, if you're not settled on yourself or concentrated, you will think, what a noise! Their 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 voices are not very good, and then you get distracted. But he says, when you're when you're settled, you let the sound of the blue jay comes right into your heart and you are a blue jay and the blue jay is reading. (laughs) And he smiles and laughs and, whoa, advanced practice. (laughs) You are a blue jay and the blue jay is reading a book. (laughs) Okay. Something else? What, uh, in, in your long-term practice of Zen and then also coming a little bit to Vipassana, what do you find that is the same and, and different about the practices? <clears throat> well, part of it is, you know, the fabric of the situation. Because at Zen Center, you can actually... We actually lived together and practiced together, you know, sometimes for many years. Uh, And so that's rather different than, you know, come together and go back to your life, come together and go back to your life. Um, And so, uh, you know, that makes, in a way, Vipassana practice much more accessible. Uh, And people sometimes think that Zen, um, you know, is kind of formal and rigid. And And it's true, we have, you know, like... Well, some of you, you know, have heard me say, you know, I was at the Buddhist Teachers Conference here, and um, I was in a little home group with Joseph Goldstein, and across the circle from Joseph and I was Gaelic Rinpoche, uh, um, Sogyal Rinpoche, and Zogni Rinpoche. 
And after we'd introduced ourselves, Zogni Rinpoche looks across at me and says, So, Ed, what's the difference between you and Joseph? Your question. So I was being a little flip, and I said, Well, our hair's shorter uh, than theirs, and, you know, we have little outfits, and they don't. And Jack is... Jack is sitting, I mean, Joseph is sitting there with his cardigan sweater, you know, and his, you know, his nice shirt and, you know, some khaki pants. And I'm sitting there with my black, you know. And Zogni Rinpoche looks at me and he says, no, Ed, I'm serious. <laughs> and I'm still wishing I had said, I guess that's the difference between you and me. <laughs> but when he, but, huh? Yeah, he's Tibetan. So, um, but I missed my chance and I got intimidated, like, oh, God, he's serious. How do I get to be, how can I be serious, you know? And, um, so, and you know, I don't know what to emphasize about the difference between Zen and Vipassana, but, you know, we actually live together. And so it's more like family. You can actually become, a, you know, part of the family. And Vipassana is a little bit more like college or institution. And, you know, it's, and so you can come together, but you're going apart again. And we actually, we do actually end up like, I'm in the lineage, you know, I'm a descendant. I'm an, you know, I have these, I have these, and I have this extended family now that I'm very close to. You know, people I've now known for 30 and 40 years. And of course, that's true in the Vipassana community too, that, you know, if you practice, you, you know, over many years, you get to know a lot of people. Um but it's very interesting, you know, one of the kinds of, one of the sort of uh, differences is, you know, I actually found it very useful to have instructions finally after all those years. Because in Zen they say things like, arouse the way in mind. And in Vipassana it's like, you know, note the inhalation and exhalation, in and out. Oh, okay. I could do that. And in sense, like, way-seeking mind? Which, how do I... And then they say in sin, they'll say things like, let the flower of your life force bloom. <laughs> so you have to kind of, you kind of have to get with the lingo, you know, and the... And the family style and the family kind of, you know, aphorisms and, you know, slogans. You have to, like, know how to you know, figure out something to do with those things, like let the flower of your life first bloom. Okay. And then you sort of, at some point, you have to have sort of the confidence to go, I guess whatever's happened is actually the flower of my life first blooming. Pretty good. <laughs> you know, it helps you go, you know, somebody... People would ask Katagiri Roshi, I'm so tired. This, this guest season we do at Tessahara in the summer, I mean, we work so hard, and then you still have to get up and meditate, and we're only getting six and a half or seven hours of sleep, and this is terrible, and it's so hot, and it's dusty, and the food's not that good, and, you know. And Katagiri Roshi would say, it's the flower of your life force blooming, don't you think? <laughs> no, I thought it was just being tired and annoyed. <laughs> But anyway, in Vipassana, you actually get instructions. In Zen, we, we sort of have the feeling like, you know, the way to do anything in your life is to do it. And like, if you want to meditate, meditate. You know, figure it out. <laughs> Sit down, shut up, and don't move. <laughs> so we're sort of like the... Um, did you see that cartoon in the New Yorker? There's the, on the, it's at the, um, um, I forget if it's the therapist or I think it's the book agent, you know, and the lemming is, the little lemming is sitting there in the chair with the, with the, you know, the head bandage and the, and the, and the um, editor is saying, yes, and not only has no one ever survived like this before, but, you know, and then to tell about it too, <laughs> something like this. But um, in, Zen, in, in Zen, we sort of have the idea like, you know, we're all going over the cliff together, you know. <laughs> Sit down, shut up, don't move, and, and you know, and if you're not in your seat, we're going to come find you. 
Um, and so there's a so there's a big kind of focus like that. And Vipassana is you know the you know is often like you know like I went to the three month course in Barry one year, and Joseph says. You know, I mean, my Zen teacher used to say, don't move. And then, of course, the next day he would say, some of you are taking me literally. (laughs) (laughs) You can move if you want to, but you should have the spirit of not moving. (laughs) But at, at, at Barry, you know, Joseph would say, you know, some people over the years have found it very useful to make a commitment to not moving. And some of you may like to take on this commitment. <laughs> you know, for a period or, or maybe for a day or... Oh, okay, that's a little different. <laughs> so we have... So anyway, there are differences, but... Um, and, um, but, you know, we're... we're um, in any case, you know, we're finding our way to our inner life and our inner voice, you know, and, and sorting out, as I said earlier, which is of all those voices, you know, and what do I, how do I take these things that are occurring to me and how do I understand and how do I be with the, how do I become intimate with my experience in such a way that I can, I have confidence in acting on it? Or as I sometimes say, you know, we're studying how to trust our heart, and to trust, you know, that we can act from our heart and with our heart and with our good-heartedness in our life. And, you know, and that, you know, however you understand that, I mean, you know, that, you know, the kindness and good-heartedness is inside and how do we actually, you know, meet that? And, and to some extent, as you know, this is about practicing it. When you practice being kind for a while, then you start, you know, the kindness comes more, more naturally. Um, I saw in the Inquiring Mind, which you'll see in a few days, you know, uh, Rick Mendius and Richard Hansen, is it? Rick, Rick Hansen. Yeah, Rick Hansen. They're both Ricks. Well, in the Inquiring Mind, is listed as Richard, but anyway, two Ricks. Okay. Anyway, they're, they're talking about, you know, there's an article and then there's also advertisement that they're starting a group to train your mind. But that's basic Buddhism, that if you practice something, it begins to happen more automatically. So it's pretty sweet. And Vipassana, more carefully gives, in that sense, more careful instruction about what to practice. And in Zen, it's more like, um, uh, find, you know, allow what's, you know, something from within to come up that you, you know, is there for you to practice. So that's a little different, and it's a little more sense of, you know, the, the student being on the spot to, you know, to come up with how to practice. And of course, but it's also in relationship with the teacher. Anyway, we need to stop. But thank you for considering that. I like to end with a chant in the syllable ho. It's a Japanese word for dharma. And um, I'd like to chant for a minute or so. And I think of this as a way for us to share our hearts with one another by letting the sound of the ho enter and vibrate, resonate through your body, and then join in the sound with your voice. And also, it's an opportunity for us to send out our prayers and blessings out to the world, to all beings, or to any particular relatives or friends that you would like to extend your hearts and our benefit, our blessing, and merit of our practice out into the world. So I'll hit the bell to begin, and then we'll chant Ho, and then after a bit, a minute or so, I'll hit the bell to end. Okay? Ho!
<clears throat> so there's the end of the evening announcements again. Next Monday, uh, Jack is here with Dr. Arya Ratane, who is known as the Gandhi of Sri Lanka. Dinner will be served. It would be a great help, any of you who are willing to assist in the cleanup tonight, moving the chairs to the side of the hall. And um, so if you're not, if you're able to stay longer and you're not blocking another car, then you're welcome to stay and help out with the uh, what to do. And also the reminder that when you leave here and if you're going back into town uh, to Fairfax, turn right onto Cervantes Drake, left onto Woodacre. Do not make a U-turn on Railroad Avenue. Please remember to look around the hall and in the foyer. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.